2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Dinty W. Moore and Zoe Bossier, the editors of the new anthology, The Best of Brevity, 20 Groundbreaking Years of Flash Nonfiction. The anthology brings together the best of Brevity magazine, which publishes works of literary nonfiction that are less than 750 words. So, how do you write about, say, the experience of becoming a mother, or losing a father, or coming of age, or the nature of our age, all in less than 750 words? And how do you do it powerfully, beautifully, and artfully? It seems impossible. And yet, for over 20 years, this is exactly what Brevity has given us, thousands of literary gems that glow and pulse with our humanity. Today, I get the chance to ask Denti and Zoe about how these 750 words or less wonders work, and how the magazine has fostered a new literary genre into American letters, the New Books Network.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: It's great. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And our conversation is also a celebration. Um, you both have put together an anthology, The Best of Brevity. 20 groundbreaking years of flash nonfiction. Um, so here we are celebrating 20 years of a literary magazine in existence, which is no small feat in itself. Um, but it is also one that's that's been tremendously innovative in terms of not only um, taking place on a digital format long before this was a thing, um, but also I think creating and fostering an entire genre of, of American literature um, in a really essential and and productive way that's that's really changed the landscape of how we think about literary nonfiction. And and I'm just thinking about those those readers who might click on to this, you know, they're they're in the car, um, and and they're just kind of curious about, you know, what is flash nonfiction? I'm wondering if we could just kind of start there and speak to to an outsider to the genre who might not know what we're talking about. Um what is this this animal, right? Flash nonfiction.
0: Well, if you'd asked me 20 years ago or 22 years ago, I would have said it's nonfiction that is very brief. And in fact, it is. All, all the brevity essays uh, have been 750 words or fewer. But one of the learning experiences for me of this whole journey is that it, it's more than just shorter. There's something unique about the experience of writing and reading such intensely compressed true stories. Um, I don't have a perfect analogy, but I'm, it's like a you know, the difference between a, a, a formal representational painting and, you know, some of the experiments that we see in painting and visual art. Uh, the, 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 the flash form has taken on a very experimental um and unusual and surprising uh face to the world and and literary artists have jumped in you know nonfiction storytellers have jumped in and sort of taken this form and made things out of it that i never imagined possible that wasn't that wasn't a very clear answer uh because it's it's an art form and it's hard to nail it down but it's it's a very intense compressed vivid, emotional, brief literary experience.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Zoe, would you like to add to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, having uh, studied the Flash form, having been the editor of Brevity, the managing editor of Brevity for a few years now and reading just hundreds and hundreds, I think that it's so much easier to know what Flash is by describing elements of it than by prescribing any kind of rule about it if that makes sense. Um, because every time that I think someone endeavors to do that, much like in nonfiction itself, the genre itself, um, someone comes along and breaks it, right? Um, something that maybe we didn't think was possible in the flash form. Some um, ingenuous writer will come along and, and do it. And so um, I tend to think of flash in uh, terms of distillation, right? Or in terms of uh, you know, like the iceberg theory in fiction, where there's like a, a small um, small amount that you can see, and then there's a lot kind of implied or lingering under the surface. And so I think that flash can extend or retract in that way.
2: And you you use this metaphor of distillation, and Dinty talked about compression. So you get the sense of like, you know, the diamond is the compression of um Of carbon or you know the distillation of you know a rose into the adder of the rose um and there is there is this experience in reading these that they're so much larger than the space they take up on the page um that there's just this this tremendous you know it's like much more like going through this window into a world um than it is a painting on the wall and i'm just curious you know one of the things about flash nonfiction is, you know, we can say that there have been short pieces around since the kind of invention of literary nonfiction, um, but but one of the things that this anthology marks is really a rise, a robust rise in the genre and its possibilities. And for me reading this, it's it's just this excitement of, you know, what would it have been like when in italy people first started writing sonnets and were figuring out what the sonnet could do and there was just this new creature this new genre that had entered literature and suddenly the possibility seemed endless and you know denti you've been you've been not only at the forefront of it for 20 years um, but you've you've sort of seen it find its its life and i'm curious if you could you could speak to that experience of in some ways seeing a a genre come into its own. And Zoe is someone who kind of came of age with this genre existing. I'm curious about your experience of,
0: of encountering it. Well, first of all, like so many things, this is all sort of rear view mirror talk. I'm looking back and saying, Oh, this is what, you know, the experience was like. Uh, Whereas when it was, as it was happening the first year, the second year, the fifth year, the 10th year of brevity, uh, I was busy trying to edit a magazine and not quite realizing how much was happening around me. Um, But yeah, it it has been an amazing experience to see what was a, a marginal idea. Flash fiction was already becoming established, but flash nonfiction was not something anybody was talking about. To see what was a marginal idea uh, where I had you know four or five authors clamoring to submit their work and then a year later 10 or 12 authors clamoring to submit their work to have it grow to, to such a amazingly wide enterprise uh, that was amazing and and we've t- you know Zoe and I both touched on this but you know when I started it I thought okay flash nonfiction is a is a compressed scene and somehow that scene has enough of a a promise and a resolution that it feels complete as in an essay and over the years i've learned that someone you know that it doesn't have to be a scene a single scene and it can be so much more than a scene and there's so many different ways and there are so many different modes of non-fiction writing that'll fit uh into the flash form that that you know it it was like watching you know an, an enormous change i keep coming back to painting as a as a metaphor here, because I know that as soon as somebody said, you know, as soon as some, some critics somewhere say, well, this is what a painting is and a painting can't be anything else. You know, the artists all jump to the fore and say, well, yeah, well, look at this. This is a painting. And I feel like, you know, that has happened in an odd way with the non, with the flash nonfiction form. It's, it started to define itself in brevity. And then some, some writers came and submitted some pieces that did something different and had an enormous amount of energy. I published them and and other writers said, well, yeah, well, guess what? I can also do this. Um, it's always a surprise. Each issue is I mean, and the issue wasn't a surprise to me because as Zoe and I are editors, we know what's going to be in it. But when, when the issue is finally finished and you look at it and go, My, what look what the authors have done this time around. It's kind of a surprising moment of of of, of forward progress, you know, forward aesthetic progress. It's like, my goodness we've, we've taken yet another big step forward in, in, defining or refusing to define, you know, what's possible in this brief, brief form.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that is, has been exciting and remains exciting about flash fiction because, um, for me as a student, it was highly formative to come across flash essays and particularly brevity's essays. Um, it's something that I encountered first in classes And it's fun because each essay takes on a different style, a different tone, a different form, um, and it seems very doable, right? So what I like about Flash is that anyone from any level of writing can partake, you know? So beginners can write a Flash piece and folks who have been writing for 20 or 30 years submit Flash pieces too. And that's something that for me as a writer, it made me feel like I could contribute in some way. Like it may be daunting to write something that's 10 pages long, but I could absolutely sit down and write something in 750 words. And um, I was fascinated with brevity for that reason. And it's a big part of what, uh, for me anyway, uh, made me want to continue writing. And that's, that's where I am now.
2: That's great. That's yeah. great. Well, let me ask the the question that, of course, is it's going to be maybe impossible, but also very practical to answer. So, this is the best of a, a magazine that's been coming out for twenty years, um, Dinty. If you could, at some point, let us know how many people are are clamoring. At this point in time, um, to be a part of the magazine, that would be really useful to go from five to whatever about, it might about, be. About, about four
0: hundred submissions per month, uh, which adds up to about twelve hundred submissions per issue. We don't, I mean, we don't read during the summer, but for the eight months that we read, we get about four hundred ish, four hundred submissions. Uh, we come out three times a year, so we go from twelve hundred submissions. One thousand two hundred uh, down to the fifteen essays that we've chosen for that particular issue.
2: So, so here's the question, right? To go from twelve hundred to fifteen, and then from all the issues to you know the the four dozen or so that are in this one. What? How do you make that choice? How do you make those choices? Oh, I just asked Zoe to do
0: it. <laughs>
1: No, it wasn't easy. But um, for us, the process involved going back and reading. And there were, at the time, um, this was right before the 60th issue of Brevity was published. So um, we were going through and reading about 800 essays that had been published over the 20 plus years. And from those, we just made a list and we paid attention to things like uh, form things like popularity, right. Um, things like how often the essay seemed to be taught, um, the perspectives of the writers. Um, and then there were also choices that needed to be made about, okay, so we've got one writer who is maybe two or three essays in brevity, which one of these are we going to select to put into the collection?
0: Exactly. Um, and in terms of the, the, Regular brevity issues like the May issue for 2021, which is coming up fairly soon. Um th- It's hard to make the choices, obviously. We turn away some excellent work. Sometimes it's as simple as we've never seen a piece that, that, that works, that delves into that subject area in that way before. Um, for me, I think a large determinant of what ends up in our regular brevity issues and, in fact, in the best of brevity. Is is a com- is voice, um, there's a sense that the, the, the author writing this piece uh, is there behind every sentence telling you the story. It's not generic in any way. Uh, an urgency that, that kind of goes sometimes hand in hand with voice that the author um, is compelled to tell this story. And, you know, on a more practical level, but they're all kind of of a piece. It's, it's at the language level. It's just the word choice, the energy, the, the quickness of the sentences, uh, except when it needs to slow down, the, the vividness of the nouns and verbs, the musicality of the rhythm. You know, there's so much that a brevity, I almost said brevity poem, there's so much that a brevity essay okay. has in common with poetry uh, that you can read it. You know, some some of many of them you can read them and, and detect a rhythm going on, not a formal rhythm like a, like a, you know, like a sonnet might, but, it, but a, a rhythm. So it's, it's voice, it's urgency and it's language. Mm-hmm.
2: Can you talk a little bit about, you know, one of the things I admire about brevity is that it, it has grown like you were, you were saying it in terms of look at what these writers have done in this latest issue and kind of, you know, being amazed, you there, there's a kind of subset of established literary journals and magazines out there that that they operate by kind of having this fixed identity about what they publish, what their editorial vision is this is the kind of work we do um, And one of the things about brevity that's you know looking back at it but also looking at, at things that have happened recently, um, is that it, it seems responsive to its moment? You know, there have been these wonderful issues on on race, um, on on disabled bodies. Um, you know, in this anthology now, you you would think that it was speaking to our moment as much as it's speaking to to twenty years ago. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, you know, as someone who's who's seen a lot of editorial visions. Um, What's the principle by which this this freshness you know, happens? Um, it's the kind of thing I'd like to see exported across more literary
0: magazines. Well thank you for the compliment. I hope it's true because you know, sometimes I wonder if all editors of all magazines think that they're being you know, responsive and, 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 and don't realize that they're in a rut and publishing much of the same work. Uh, if indeed we've uh, we've managed not to do that, not to repeat ourselves uh, issue after issue, then then I'm very happy for it. Uh, maybe part of it is the young energy. Um, you know, as Zoe pointed out, this is a magazine that because of its accessibility, it's free on the internet, and because of the size of the uh, individual essays. Uh, it's taught a lot at, at the undergraduate level, certainly at the graduate level, in writing programs and, and creative writing classes. Uh, beginning writers seem to glom onto it because it seems possible uh, to write something that short uh, when sometimes it's harder to imagine writing something of quality that's much longer. So I do think we've attracted a a, a younger audience of reader probably, but certainly of of, of uh, at the submissions queue. Um, there's always, we've always published, you know, writers who, this is their first or second publication ever. They're not established in the literary scene. We've always published writers like that. And some of our best pieces come in that way. So, so I don't really know, but I, I and, 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 and editors like Zoe, and there've been other managing editors over the year uh, who are by definition much younger than me, because I started this a long time ago and these, uh Younger editors who come in and help out in so many different ways, including our wonderful reading staff. You know, they push me too, and they say, "Look at this! This is wonderful!" And I have to sort of read it sometimes and think, "Why do they like it so much?" And then, you know, a light goes a light bulb goes off above my head to throw a one a cl- cliche out there, and I think, "Ah, I get it! I get why this is working." So, all of those factors, maybe. Zoe, what do you think? Yeah.
1: I think everything you said, and then in addition to that, something that we've been implementing, um, especially since we've had um, just a wonderfully diverse reading staff, is to make sure that everyone is reading, not necessarily with an eye toward their own taste, but more so like, what what haven't we seen before in brevity? And so when there is a piece that comes into the queue that seems like, wow, we've never published anything like this or anything touching on this, or if we have, it was a long time ago, or it was um, looking at it in a different way. uh, That piece is very likely to be read by everybody on staff and discussed at length. And so I think that that rather than um, just kind of leaving it up to is this quote unquote good writing has led us to pick up a lot of things that um, if we weren't looking for them, maybe we wouldn't have wouldn't have ever found because our editors would have just put it aside and said, Oh no, I don't understand this. Or, um, the writing doesn't grab me or any number of other excuses.
0: Sure. Sure. I will say there've been a couple of times that I you know, read a piece three times it's been a really good piece that had been recommended by other people on staff and thought, Oh yeah, now I really see it, but, but is this going to be a little too tough for the audience? And I have consistently said, no, the audience can going to handle it. And uh, they always have. I mean, I, I guess, what am I trying to say? Don't underestimate your readers. That's my advice for other editors. Don't underestimate your readers. They're not only smart, but they're hungry for work that's going to challenge them a little.
2: I love that. I love that. You know, earlier in our conversation, you kind of, you know, in, in a lighthearted way, pointed out a dynamic Um that's a kind of defiant one right like here's here's literary nonfiction in the latest issue of of brevity um and then the writers out there are like no it can be it can be this too it can be that too and this accounts for some of the surprise of what comes in um, with the submissions i'm curious hearing you both speak now you know the kind of invitational side of 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 the magazine um, is really refreshing. You know, many an editor will talk about the woes of the submission pile. Um, and there's an excitement in both of your voices about that. I'm wondering if, from your perspectives, is there is there work like you're hoping shows up, or like you know, now would be the moment? I'd really love to see a piece that does this, or a writer who's trying that. Like, are there are there hopes and dreams um, for what you're you're looking for in those twelve
0: hundred submissions? I feel like the the key, the submission queue is always a few months ahead of me. <laughs> it shows up just before I realize I want it. Um, just before I realize it's what people are talking about. Does that make sense to you, Zoe, what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, it does. I think because we get so many submissions per period, we end up having just so much that could be published in brevity, but that we don't have the space for. So we're lucky in that way that we uh, are highly selective. Though I will say that something that I'm always looking for and always interested in reading are, again, perspectives that have not been represented in Brevity before or not very extensively. Um, and I've I've put a couple of calls for submissions out on Twitter before, just encouraging people to submit to us, especially if they uh, have a story that they'd like to tell that they feel is underrepresented in traditional publishing venues. Um, and we've gotten some really great pieces yeah. from that yeah. actually. Yeah, from, from calls like that. Uh, and so I'm, I'm always open for anything, but I always pay particular attention, I would say, if I see something and I think, wow, I've not, I've not seen that in our magazine yet. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's, it's really – oh, please go ahead, Dinti. Um, I'm also very proud that we don't solicit. I don't reach out to – I have a lot of friends out there who are writers and uh, who published well. Uh, have names, have books, and I don't, I don't, I don't go out and actively say, "Please send me a piece for brevity." Uh, sure, you know, sometimes uh, a Roxane Gay will submit something through the submittable queue, and I'll look and say, "Oh my goodness, it's Roxane Gay," uh, and I'll, and, but, but we don't, we don't. Everybody submits through the submittable queue. Um, it, it's not like a group of, of writers who you know, have made, they've made the brevity brand that, that that I reach out to and say, you know, come on, send me something, send me something. It's like you open it up and you're surprised to see who's there. Mm-hmm. And the best, and, and, so and, and you know, people, writers like Rebecca McClanahan, Sue Silverman, Lee Martin, uh, Brenda Miller have shown up time and time again because they work hard at the Flash form and have been submitting some of them for, you know, 20 years. But most of our issues are still made up of writers who've you know never been in brevity before, and it's, it's that that sort of allows for a, a constant turnover and freshness. I hope. Yeah, I, I think that there's something
2: wonderful as as magazines become more established. You know, and, and brevity is certainly one that I think in literary nonfiction people look to now as like, well, that's that's literary nonfiction. That's where it's happening. Um, to know that that door is opened as a younger writer. I think just to hear that, because so many of
0: the doors seem shut. Um, I'm excited when I I read a piece and I realize we're either going to be the first person to publish this writer or maybe they've had one or two other pieces in small magazines. But it excites me when the writer we're publishing is not an established voice. We took it all. We brought them to our land.
2: Well, can we talk a little bit about the work that Brevity does to to seed the ground? I mean, I think we've talked about that in terms of the selection process and the the publishing process, uh, but Brevity is really more than just a literary magazine. Um, you know, alongside the literary magazine are are pieces on craft, and then there's a, a Brevity blog, which is pretty much sort of like one of the epicenters of information for the world of literary nonfiction. Um, And then there's this, this I think really vibrant and robust desire to, to make this available as a teaching, you know, a teaching encounter and a teaching experience. Um, You know, you had mentioned Zoe of encountering that in school and Dinty had talked about the fact that people teach brevity, but you know, that's not just all by chance. You all are, are helping teachers out with that. Uh, would you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the, all that happens around the issues that come out and and how you see that as part of the, the editorial vision
0: of brevity? Um, I'm, a lifelong teacher, so uh, I guess it's in my in my veins. Very early on, I would ask authors uh, who wrote for the you know the first ten issues of Brevity to occasionally write a piece that sort of said, "Here's where this essay came from. What's the genesis of this essay?" And those, and then that sort of turned into the Brevity blog, which has expanded into into something more than that. But we still have authors reflecting on why i wrote this essay or what were the challenges of writing this essay or how did you know how did this germ of an idea uh, transform itself into something very different that ended up being this essay so i think there's a lot that could be learned from hearing authors talk about that and you know being that it's a web-based magazine you know we started to conglomerate those things and, and give links on our teaching page as to where to find essays like that. And, and uh, we worked on a project to tag our essays according to, you know, subject matter and mode and, and craft. And it, it, it just, it just grows and grows. And then certainly the best of brevity, the anthology we're talking about is a big step forward because it's very easy to use in the classroom. You can, you can, it's inexpensive. You can pick it up. You can uh, take it home. You can read from it uh in all the ways it's not that sometimes technology makes that easier, sometimes technology makes that harder. You can write in the margins, you can underline. Uh, but we also have a lot extensive extensive I think there's a fancy word for this apparatus, I think is the word, but we have <laughs> we have a whole lot of resources in the book to help sort of find ways to teach these essays, whether you're teaching a college class or whether you're just sort of teaching yourself, you know, from these essays what went into the writing of
1: them. Right. Yeah. The the anthology is wonderful because it's comprehensive in a way that a website that publishes 15 essays three times a year has a, a blog that publishes almost daily um, really can't be in a sense because it's big and it's sprawling. And um, it represents the ongoing conversations that writers and teachers and students are all having about Slash nonfiction, um, just day in and day out, we you see that kind of uh, discussions on the blog a lot because that often interacts with the kind of topical writing questions of the day or um, you know the writing life things like that. So it branches out in that way. Um, but yeah, I think that whenever you have a platform like Brevity, which is online, um, you have a community around it as well, of folks who want to talk about the essays, want to learn more about the essays, want to um, relate their own writing experiences. And so I think that the opportunities for brevity as a teaching resource really kind of sprung out of that community um, of of readership, of readers.
2: Yeah, that that sounds... sounds very useful. And and I think if you're a beginning writer of any age or a younger writer to have a kind of bounded domain that you can encounter, um, and work with and work through and learn from and experiences is is different than, than hitting the, you know, the vast landscape that is literary nonfiction or, or even brevity as its large apparatus as Denti so aptly said, (laughs) um, yeah. So you 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 touched on something, Zoe, and I'm kind of curious. Um, as as a writer of a, a younger generation, um, what are what are the pressing concerns of the moment for writers of literary nonfiction? What do you see rising right now? Since we're in, as we've heard so many times, this unprecedented moment what What are the conversations that are taking place right now? What are what are these writers thinking about?
1: Wow, that's a big question. Um, well, there's always the kind of perennial question that comes up and comes up and comes up about truth and nonfiction and how one renders artfully, Through memory. And um, so you see that in the blog quite a bit. But then lately, there have been a lot of exciting conversations too about privilege and about, um, you know, in the publishing world, like who gets to, uh, for example, have a falling out on Twitter, right? Um, And so, like, this is a conversation that I've been following uh, unwittingly, but. On Twitter right now, just about the privilege of um, of certain white writers, right, and how they can express themselves in a certain way in their writing, um, in public, in ways that is not afforded to writers of color, right. And so these are the kind of conversations that um, you know begin maybe on social media or begin um, within small groups of writers that then expand and. Uh, We'll get submissions from folks to the blog commenting on these things or coming to some kind of conclusion. And that's something that I really love about the blog. And I've actually written a couple of pieces over the years for it myself, Um, just thinking about uh, different aspects of the writing world and how our understandings of how we write, what we write about, who we write to um, are changing just by the year. It's a fascinating evolution.
2: Did he? thank you zoe thank you i'm and and given that you're bringing out this kind of responsiveness of brevity to these conversations that are unfolding in real time on social media i'm just kind of curious here we have this this magazine that started on online in 1997 um by somebody who wrote a book you know around then about the fact that you know The internet is just not, not, not all that, maybe. Hmm. Um, And, uh, and here you are, Dinti, you know, 20 years later, over 20 years later. um, And, and this huge swell of, of the digital world has come up around brevity. um, Where now, you know, on Facebook, any given click, you're going to see prose pieces of people writing about their life that are, you know, just about the same length or on Instagram or something like that. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, maybe for, for listeners of, you know, uh, Zoe's age or, or younger, like, what was it like to see that change um, and
0: be at the center of it?
2: Um, In the sense that you were there.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, similar to my earlier answer, you know, the answer in the rearview mirror uh you know want wants to create some sort of coherence to it but it, at the time it was like well we've only got a week to get the next issue out and and the submissions queue is backing up somebody better read all those submissions and how are we going to pay for this or make that work or you know it's time to find some more submission readers it just it just felt like uh, you know putting out the, putting out the daily newspaper not quite as not quite daily, but uh, you you don't have a whole lot of time to sit around and think, what does all this mean? Uh, you're just doing it. I know, there was a, I know there was an exciting moment when I realized this was going to be around for a while. I mean, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I said there were eight writers clamoring to be in the first issue and 12 to be clamoring in the second issue. And I think there were probably about 20 readers. Those, you know, those, those people we published plus one or two of their spouses. And uh, it, 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 it didn't take long for me to realize that that a lot of people were reading this and and intrigued by the form. Um, a, a stroke of luck on my part, uh, you know, smart smart luck because I saw what was happening in flash fiction and realized that was really interesting. But I, I made the leap that it might be even might be interesting as well in nonfiction, and I I don't know it might it turned out to be even more interesting in nonfiction. I don't know. Uh, where am I going with this? So. There was the moment when I realized people were really going to read it. Uh, there was a moment, probably in year four or five, where I realized, wait a minute, people are writing pieces specifically for this magazine. They're not, you know, they're not sending us short pieces. They just happen to have lying around. They're they want they want to be in brevity, so they're writing brevity length pieces with brevity in mind. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the the rapid growth to where we were getting hundreds of submissions per issue and, 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 you know, I've been 300, 400, and now we're up to, like I said, almost 1200 submissions per issue. Um, and it, and it, and it happened slowly, but it really accelerated about five or six years ago that I realized the magazine had got international. We're getting a lot of submissions, uh, not just from Americans living abroad, but from English speakers, Certainly in India, but English speakers and other, in other or bilingual speakers in other countries uh, throughout Europe and Asia, uh, which is also which is also sort of an exciting thing to see happen. Uh, I'm wandering away because I don't remember the question anymore, but it had to do with what. What did it feel like to watch this thing take off on the internet? And uh, it was it was it was it was. It was amazing. It still is amazing. Frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm not over it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. The question was, how was it back then? Old timer. Oh, how was know, it back well, then? One thing we had to pedal to make the internet work. Uh, There's a little pedal under my desk, that I would use my feet to keep the internet up and running.
2: <laughs> I hope you'll keep that around for like the, and, you know,
0: 30th anniversary. We're going to repedal. Zoe, so, so you, uh, you probably heard me tell this story before, but it's absolutely true. When I was so excited about this new internet thing and what we called the World Wide Web, then I turned to a colleague of mine. I was teaching at a Penn State campus in Central Pennsylvania, and said, "You should, you should check out this internet thing. There are at least a thousand web pages you can look at on the World Wide Web." You know, I just thought a thousand web pages was, you know, as big as anything could ever be. I think there's, <laughs> there's a few more than a thousand now. <laughs>
1: On brevity's side alone, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yes, exactly. You've just reproduced your initial vision of the the internet. Well, you know, I want to set this up uh, for our listeners. So one of the challenges of doing an interview about an anthology, um, you know, which is such an important part not the interviews, the anthologies are are kind of such an important part of um, uh, American literary landscapes. You know, they give us this sense of what's happening and what has happened and, you know, touchstones, um, is that the editors, right. Unless they have a particular kind of ego, don't usually put themselves in it. Um, and I'm happy to say that you are, you you are both the, the kinds of literary citizens that wouldn't slip your own things into your own anthology. Um, and so, you know, it's tough to, to figure out how to give a reading to give people an, an experience of it. Um, so so we decided that we could do this kind of experiment to explore what makes a flash piece versus what makes something longer. Um, because both of you, I should, if people haven't picked it up by now, are writers in your own right who are, you know, producing and have produced powerful work. Um, and both of you are at a moment where where a memoir is happening in a very significant way in your work, so uh, Dinty has one that has just come out called "To Hell with It," um, which, in one of my favorites descriptors of it, was called uh, "Theological Stand Up at Its Best" by one of the the blurbers. Um, but it's hilarious and heartbreaking, and uh, <laughs> Zoe is in, in the midst of uh, writing a memoir Um, that's already being published, uh, you know, in really august places like Guernica. Um, So we thought that that perhaps each of you could read a snippet um, from your memoirs that that might stand as, uh, you know, kind of brief literary nonfiction as a flash, but then perhaps we could talk about you know, what is it that makes it flash-like, but also what is it that, that lends itself to being part of a larger whole um, as compared to these flash pieces that stand on their own? Um, does that feel like a, a fair summary of what's about to go down?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, I think... Um, let, let's start with you, Zoe. Could you maybe introduce what you're you're going to read, and then read it, and we could chat about it for a while if you're willing to do so, and then we're here a, a little bit of to hell with it and and see what comes up in our two conversations or our two yeah. turns.
1: Yeah, I can do that. Um, so this is from uh, my memoir project, and right now it, it's sort of a working title, but the memoir is called Welcome to Cactus Country. Um, And it's, the the book is primarily uh, kind of a coming of age, thinking about gender, thinking about place. When I was 11 years old, my parents bought an Airstream trailer. They were kind of eccentric people. So they bought this trailer and they decided to move the family from Virginia, where I'd spent most of my childhood up until that point, to Tucson, Arizona, into a trailer park. So it was a whole new place. And um, as a kid, the, the other layer of this or the other side of this is that you know? I um, so I was assigned female at birth, but I never really felt right in my in my own body, with my own self, with my identity, and so I took the opportunity to um, change my identity in a way. And I got a haircut, and I decided that I would be a boy from then on. So um, this is from the first chapter in the memoir, and. Um, I guess all you really need to know about it is that it's the first day in the park, the first experience that we have in Cactus Country RV Park. In one motion, the boy pulled a knife from his pocket, whipped it open, and pointed its blade at my face. If you touch that, he said, I'll cut you. This was my first impression of life in Cactus Country, the Tucson, Arizona trailer park my family had just hours ago moved into. Flicking my eyes from the blade to the boy's fierce, angry eyes, I realized three things. First, this boy thought I was another boy. Second, his threat was a test. And third, if I had any hope of surviving here, I needed to pass it. The boy's hair was shaved close to the skin, prickly follicles shooting up like cacti sprouting from chapped earth. Out in the desert, a long cargo train rumbled over splintered tracks, its whistle echoing faintly against the trailers surrounding us. A dog and a neighbor's campsite howled back at the train. The boy and I squinted at each other through the broad sunlight, trying hard not to blink. Another dog howled, and another, their calls sounding to our ears like a battle cry. You're not going to do anything, I sneered. I said it like a dare. The boy kept the blade where it was, even as I pulled my lanky arm away from the toy. After a few long seconds, he lowered the knife, returning to the electronic game he held in his other hand. We sat at the picnic table in silence as I funneled dirt from my fingers onto my shorts just to have something to do with my hands. I tried to keep my face blank, my nerves hidden. To leave now, I knew, would be to fail the first real test of my boyhood. But the rules were still unclear to me. I wondered how long I would have to wait here and when I would know if I'd passed. The boy twisted his face in sudden rage. The stupid game, he spat down at the machine. Before I knew what he was doing, the boy had slammed the door of his trailer behind him, leaving me alone at the picnic table. Slowly, I stood up and brushed the dirt off my shorts. I began the long walk across the park back to my own trailer, where my parents sat on lawn chairs watching what would be the first of many breathtaking desert sunsets. Did you find your friend? Mom asked, lifting her sunglasses. Even though we'd only been in the Southwest a couple of days, her hair had already faded blonde in the sun her skin taking on a deep tan. I shook my head, no. Well, it's only the first day, she said. You'll find your people. I settled between my parents on the ground, hot gravel digging into my skin, trying to decide whether I'd passed the boy's test. I had not shown my fear, and I had stood my ground. That was good. Still, I felt out of my element, unused to the ways of this strange, hostile place. The laws of nature I knew didn't seem to apply here, where the sunlight was harsh and the threat of sunstroke always imminent. Local wildlife could bite or sting or both. Plants were sharp and stoic, not to be touched with bare hands. Kids threatened to stab each other with knives. Surviving here, I realized, as a boy or otherwise, would be a lot more difficult than I thought. I sat quietly on the ground as my parents watched the sunset, head in my hands. I wouldn't tell them about the knife, because part of being a boy meant not telling on other boys even when you could get hurt or killed. It meant keeping secrets from adults and settling scores on your own. In the years that followed, I would come to know dozens of kids like the one I met on my first day in the park. Hard desert boys who roamed cactus country on bikes, armed with pocket knives, BB guns, slingshots. Boys who shot birds out of the sky, slammed cacti with baseball bats, beat each other's small bodies into the dusty earth. Among them, I would become the boy I was meant to be. The next morning, I bought a pocket knife at the Cactus Country Park store. Flicking the knife open with a snap of my wrist, I pointed it at an imaginary set of eyes as the boy had done to me. I practiced this, expecting another Western-style showdown when the boy and I saw each other next. This time, I would be ready to pass the test. But by that afternoon, his trailer was long gone. The only evidence his family had ever been in the park, a few broken toys scattered in the dirt under a picnic table.
2: Thank you for cool. that. Yeah. I want to read wow. that book. Me yeah. too. Thank you. Um, and as I look at the time, I think it would be maybe more efficacious if, if we had Dinty read and then we could have maybe a, a final quick conversation or a few words about how we know that that's going to be a book or, or how we can feel that flash compression um, that you've captured so nicely, that distillation.
0: Denti, would you be willing to read from from your memoir? Yeah, this is from a chapter uh, looking at the the sin of gluttony. Since my memoir is about the the sins as defined by Dante, uh, it takes place at the twenty sixth World Chicken Festivals uh, ninety six point seven FM Cool Gold Hot Wing Eating Contest in the birth in the home that was the birthplace of uh, Harlan Sanders, founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm waiting for the. Wing-eating contest to begin because I'm, in fact, part of it. (laughs) (laughs) I slide closer to the meekest looking among my fellow contestants, hoping to seek some reassurance. He looks to be in his mid-twenties, short, round, and baby-faced, except for an Amish-style beard that rings the underside of his chin. You in this? Brandon asks me. I've sat down next to him on some folding chairs, and he stares down for the most part, studying his sneakers. Yes, I answered, you? Sure am. He looks up a moment, meets my eyes. You've done this before? I avoid the question. Well, my wife says I eat too fast, that I don't even chew my food sometimes. Brandon grins. I'm the same way. I don't eat. I swallow. He smiles and closes his eyes as if maybe the memory of his eating habits gives him a certain satisfaction. I suggest then that the two of us should take a walk and work up an appetite. Brandon glances up from his Nikes, narrows his eyebrows, realizing at this very moment, no doubt, that I am a rank amateur. None of this, of course, has anything to do with appetite. I won this thing the last three times except for last year, he reveals, making small fists and pumping his pudgy arms for emphasis. My dad, he's won it for the past 10 or 15 years, but he's been sick for the past three, so that's the reason I started winning. I'm talking, it seems, to hot wing eating royalty. He points to his father about six chairs away from us, a man with the same build as Brandon, but aged and balding. So it's you, so it's you against your dad, I say brightly, against me. Brandon gives me that narrowed eyebrow look again. I hope the best for everybody, he offers. That's all. My new friend doesn't say anything more for about ten seconds. What's the trick? I finally ask. This perks him up. Like most people, he's happy to have inside knowledge and flattered when asked to share it. He looks me in the eye. Just grab you a handful of chicken. Grab you both handfuls and go for it. He illustrates with both hands grabbing at the air. You hold the chicken in both hands, I ask? No, you rip it apart with both hands. You rip it into pieces small enough you don't have to chew at all. And if you eat the bones, Brandon adds, his eyebrows climbing up his forehead, you'll pretty much win. This stops me cold. I flinch a little, blink, lean back on my chair. I had thought we were eating chicken wings, not chicken skeletons. So why do you do this? I ask. You just get yourself in there and grab some chicken. No, I interrupt. Not how. Why? Why do you do this? That's it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to know what happened next,
0: (laughs) which is maybe a
2: way into, (laughs) thank you both. Thank you both. Uh, Wow. Those are, those are both great. Um, So, so maybe we could, could finish by just, if you both speak to, to how, how you, how you think of those pieces in regard to the, the definitions you gave at the beginning of our interview about, compression and completeness and distillation, you know, the way that language is working, the way that pacing is working, the the kind of criteria that Dinty was talking about that registers for him. Um, you know, now you're on the inside. You're not the editor. You're the creator of it. Um, how do those things register to you when you're writing these pieces
0: or these excerpts? May I please go first, Zoe? Yeah. I thought mine was a lousy flash. Um, I'm not, you know... I I enjoy that chapter and I'm glad I wrote it, but you asked me to pull something out of my book length memoir and call it a flash. And I've always said, it's not the same thing. You know, a flash is not just an excerpt. And I, 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 I hope people enjoy my excerpt, but I don't think it holds up very well as a flash. It doesn't follow the
2: Did you swallow the bones? (laughs) That's what we want to know.
1: Yeah, we'll have to read the book to. I to guess know we'll that. have to. He's giving yeah. away nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, for mine, I, I felt kind of the same way because um, I ended up actually taking this out of a chapter that was double the length, um, and I found it really difficult because without crafting it as a flash piece, with that in mind, um, you you end up with a situation rather than a story, to use Vivian Gornick's language, um, where I think in mine, it hints a little bit more at what's to come, but there's not a lot of description of character. There's not a lot of time to um, understand where the speaker, me, at that age is coming from without me giving kind of like a preamble for it. Mm -hmm. So I think that is, you know, something that when you sit down to write a piece, um, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to distill something into flash. Uh, in my mind, it's a lot easier to go into something, uh, knowing that you want it to be a flash piece and starting there.
2: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think what, um you know, the way in which at least I was responding with both of those pieces is, is that I want to know what happens next. Um, that, that there's something about the longer form, even though it shares in so much of the artistic integrity of the flash piece, there's a kind of yearning built into it or at least a responsiveness from the reader. You know, I want to turn the page. I want to keep scrolling. Um, and I think that as much as completion that takes place in the flash nonfiction is a talent in and of itself and a virtue. Um, there's something about really beautiful, longer nonfiction that, that leaves this desire for you and the reader to want to keep going, to want to turn the page, to want to stay up past your bedtime. I hope you'll both share your books with us when they come out. Um, well, Dindy's is out and I'm glad he's sharing just, it with us. Barely. And- <laughs> it's
0: been floating around a few weeks.
2: Yes. So congratulations to you, Dinty, and good luck to you, Zoe. And thank you both for being here today.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: Thank you, Eric. Yeah, it was a lot of fun.